0: Stand in honor of God's Word. We're going to be reading Psalm 119, verses 137 through 144. And let's just prepare ourselves to receive from the Lord this morning. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall know This is God's word. <clears throat> Father, we just quiet ourselves before you right now. You've given me the honor of ushering these precious people into your presence. And we ask that you make yourself known. You speak to us through your holy word. And we ask you to do that this morning for encouragement and edification, for comfort and conviction. For all the things, Lord, that you say your testimonies, your precepts, and your principles will do for our lives. Conforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's our desire. Whether we really know it or not, Lord, that is our desire to be conformed into the image of your Son, to be like him. And it's also our desire, Father, to enter into a very intimate and real fellowship with you. That's to that end we pray this morning as we look at the labor and the washing of the water by the word of God. That you will give us insight in what that has to do with prayer and our relationship with you. And I ask you, Lord God, make these people's faith stronger when they leave than it is even now. And may your love just abound between us continuously. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have been learning to pray through the tabernacle. Our goal, our objective, is to experience intimate fellowship with the Lord, our Creator. Quoting Augustine again from last week, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek Him the greatest adventure, to find Him the greatest human achievement. And to paraphrase another speaker, Christ is my identity. Servanthood is my assignment, but intimacy with God is my life source. We were created for fellowship with him. We were redeemed by his blood that our sins might be forgiven. And his body was broken for us that it might open the way into that holy of holies where he dwells, where the Shekinah glory dwells, where you can find the most intimate of fellowship and relationship. We were created for that. And it's a personal relationship. and so like all relationships, it needs developing and it needs maintenance. Common to all relationships is communication, talking and listening. So that's why we are learning to pray through the tabernacle. The tabernacle, as you know, was a portable worship center the Israelites used to meet with God. And as a model of prayer, it helps us in developing and maintaining that relationship. We began the tour a couple of weeks ago where we entered in the gates of the tabernacle remember there was only one way to get into the tabernacle and we know that there's only one way into the presence of the father no one comes to the father but through me Is not what jesus said right psalm 104 tells us though what our attitude should be as we walk into his presence enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Ideally, this is a cheerful entrance. You're walking in with a smile, but that's not always possible sometimes in some seasons of life, right? So you make a faith choice. That's That's a big deal, guys. You choose to walk in being thankful, even though you don't feel you have anything to be thankful for. You choose to come in and give Him praise, even though the last thing you feel like doing is praise. We thank God for what He has done for us, spiritually, materially, emotionally, physically. And really, if you were honest about it and really got down to it, you could spend hours just right there saying thank you. We give praise to God for who He is his character, which is defined by his attributes. What are his attributes? Well, here's a few. Eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, good, holy, faithful, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, immutable, impartial, infinite, merciful, just, compassionate, long-suffering, righteous, wise, and incomprehensible, I wish I could describe him for you. He loves you unreasonably. He loves you boundlessly. He loves you. And we praise him because, well, that's who he is. And he's worthy to be praised. And we also praise him because it takes our minds off of our extremities and onto his opportunities. Extremities would be those things that have got you on the edge of giving up, perhaps at the end of your rope, if you will. And those are his opportunities to show him strong on your behalf. Blessing God changes your focus from you to him. Relieves your anxieties, relaxes your fears, clears your vision to see beyond your trials. It breaks the cycle of self-absorption. And it opens your heart to receive his love. So that's why we come into his presence with thanksgiving and praise. So in your devotional time, you enter in and you spend a few moments in just praise and thanksgiving. C.S. Lewis, quoting him from last week, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Anybody say amen to that? So as we enter that time of devotion, of waiting on God, of fellowship with him, we begin with thanksgiving and praise. Then, you know, we move to the next thing, which is the only thing now that can keep you or hinder your relationship or your experience with him. And that's to the bronze altar, or the altar of sacrifice. And this is where we confess our sins. If you remember, the altar was the place of sacrifice, of shedding blood, of burnt offerings, to atone for sins. So here we remember that, and we confess our sins. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we basically keep our accounts short with God. We come to grips with what we have done, for what we have thought, for what we have said or felt, and we take ownership of it, calling it what he calls it, seeing it from his perspective, and we ask for forgiveness, which you absolutely receive. Got it? But here we also forgive ourselves. We tend to forget about that last part of 1 John 1, 9, where it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanses is in the um, perfect present tense, meaning it's a continual action. Even now, as you sit here, you're being cleansed of unrighteousness. It it goes hand in hand with with Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation now. So let it go. Do the Elsa. You're free. Keep yourself in that place. Put false guilt to rest. Confess your struggles with shame and guilt. And then again, by faith, if not by feeling, accept his forgiveness for yourself. And here is also where we spend some time forgiving other people. Remember, Jesus commanded us to do this. This is not an option. Paul said it this way, even as Christ Jesus has forgiven you, you should forgive one another, right? You let them off the hook in your heart and in your mind, and you choose to accept the wrong done to you and the consequences that you have to live with, which you're going to live with whether you want to or not, or whether you forgive or not. And again, you do this by faith, not by feeling. All right. You do it, and you have to say that. Lord, I'm forgetting that, forgiving that bozo one more time because you told me to, not because I want to. So I'm doing it in obedience. And you do that to set you free. You understand that. And then here also... You know, we, we, we've confessed our sins, we've forgiven ourselves, we've forgiven others. We spend time struggling with our will to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. Roman 12:1 tells us to do that. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Now. The problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to crawl off the altar. All right? Um, I, I am submitted, and I will do what you want me to do. And then as soon as you see what it is he wants you to do, you crawl right off. Here you settle the issue of really who gets to call the shots in your life and who gets to rule over you. Is it going to be you or your God? And you commit to yourself to be obedient to his word and to his will. So you're, you're coming in to have a, a, an experience of intimate fellowship with God. That's your intention, okay? And everything is happening here and here, here and here, all right? And you can be very audible about it, absolutely, okay? But you've come in thanking him, praising him, confessing your sins, forgiving yourself, forgiving others. And offering yourself up as a living sacrifice. And now you come to the next station, which is the bronze labor. Turn to Exodus 30. And let's read verses 17 through 21 and see what the bronze labor is all about. Exodus 30, starting at verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute for them, a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So I think there's a picture behind me of the bronze labor. This, um, essentially was a pool of water. Uh, they had a base and the labor itself. Now, we don't know the dimensions that were given, and that's probably to be symbolic of God's grace, which has no boundaries in giving it to you. But we do know that when it was made, the metal for the bronze came from the brass mirrors of the women from Israel. And what it would serve practically was a place where the priests could wash their hands and feet before going into the holy place to minister. They're going to go into the holy place and there's a table of showbread they're going to minister at, there's a golden lampstand that they're going to minister at, and there's an altar of incense that they're going to minister at. But before they go in there, they need to be cleansed and they need to be ceremonially purified. Now this speaks to us. Ephesians 5.26. Why don't you turn there? This speaks to us of being washed by the water of the word of God. Jesus had spoken already to the disciples in John 15.3 and told them that you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So we know that the word of God has cleansing properties, okay, and a cleansing function. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Well, you say that deals with husbands and wives. True, it does. Husbands are supposed to be Washing their wives feet with the water of the word and that's a whole study for another day But they're doing it by following Christ's Example of what he does for the church That he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word in other words follow Jesus example Christ gave himself for the church that he might make her holy and clean washed by the cleansing of God's word Well, what's that got to do with prayer? Well, priests would wash at the labor after offering the sacrifices, right, to cleanse themselves before entering the holy place to do their ministering at, you know, as I said, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. Now likewise, in prayer, after we've offered up the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, confession, forgiveness, and ourselves. We need to be cleansed to enter into our ministry of prayer, which is what you're going to do when we get into the holy place. You're going to be ministering at the table of showbread, praying for your own needs. What What does it say in Matthew 6? Give us this day our daily bread. That's right. So that represents us praying for our daily needs. We're going to be praying at the golden lampstand. What does that represent? Well, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. The golden lampstand represents being the light of the world. And Jesus said that we are the light of the world. The light in what sense? The light of showing and pointing to the truth of Jesus Christ, that there is no other name under heaven or earth where men, men must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So that speaks of us ministering in prayer for all ministries, especially those ministries related to the gospel. Okay? And then there's the altar of incense in Revelation chapter 5. The altar of incense, we're told, represents the prayers of the saints. And this is where we intercede for the needs of our friends, of our families, of others. So you see, there's a work to do, guys, when you go into the holy place. There's a work to do where you're going to be ministering through prayer. Indeed, prayer is a work. Matter of fact, it can be an agonizing work. Um, When Paul talks about Epaphras, um, I think, yeah, 2 Timothy, anyway, it doesn't matter. I can't remember the book. He talks about Epaphras wrestling in prayer for the saints at Ephesus. The word wrestling there means to agonize. He's agonizing in prayer. And that's ministry that we have as priests of God. We will all minister at the table of showbread, at the golden lampstand, and at the altar of incense. So before we pray, we need to be bathed in the word of God. And when we pray, we need to bathe everything in the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that cleanses and purifies. Why do our prayers need to be cleansed and purified? Well, James 4.3 tells us that you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss. That doesn't mean you're asking a young lady, okay? <laughs> thank you it means that you are asking wrongly you're spending it on your own pleasures, in other words you're immature you're asking you're asking for your will to be done and not God's will be done a lot of prayers are like that God I got this great plan for my life this is how you can get in on it (laughs) instead of saying God your will be done you enter a time of prayer. You need to realize that the purpose of all prayer is to accomplish His will. The purpose of all prayer. How much is the word all? All, all prayer is to accomplish His will. Okay. Um, remember Matthew six ten, Jesus teaching us to pray. He said, "Your kingdom come. Your." will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in Luke 22:42, as an example, uh, before going to the cross, he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now in case you might be afraid of God's will for your life, just remember where God's will is being done perfectly. It's in heaven, it's in paradise, and there are a few people that I know that don't want to be there. Very few, maybe hardcore atheists don't want to be in heaven. But why would you be afraid of God's will if that's where it's done perfectly in heaven? So if the purpose of prayer is to accomplish God's will, then you need to know God's will as you pray. Is that possible? Yeah, it's very possible. Probably more possible than you ever thought possible. That's how possible it is. That you may know the will of God. Where are you going to find it? Somebody got it in their lap? Right? Or you got it on your your phone, right? Or you got it memorized completely from Genesis to Revelation? (laughs) That's exactly right. A lot of us say we don't know what God's will is in a manner when it's perfectly spelled out for you right there. You just haven't spent the time to dig it out. I'm going to quote E.M. Bounds about using God's word to reveal God's will. The word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed and by which things are mightily moved. Now when's the last time you used fulcrum in a sentence? Okay, How do you even know what a fulcrum is? Okay, I had to look it up. If you guys remember your basic uh, physics class back in junior high, right? They showed you that if you got something here and you place a board up here and you want to lift a heavy object, you you know, you know you, you put it so that maybe there's a short end on one side and a long end on the other side, and then you push down on it and it lifts it easily, right? The point there where my fist is, that would be the, the fulcrum, right. Now, in, in situations... Um, like what we're talking about, it's something that plays a central role or is in the center of a situation or activity. So the Word of God plays a center role. It is in the center of your prayer requests, the center of your activities. Quoting Ian Bounds again, God has committed himself, his purpose, and his promise to prayer. His word becomes the basis, the inspiration of our praying, and there are circumstances under which, by importunate prayer—you love that Um, word—I'll explain that later—we may obtain an addition or an enlargement of His promises. So, fundamentally, he's saying that the Word of God has a great help in prayer, and if the Word is lodged in your mind and written in on your heart, it forms what E.M. Bounds calls an outflowing current of prayer, full and irresistible. The Word of God. Promises stored in the heart are to be the fuel from which prayer receives life and warmth, just as the coal stored in the earth ministers to our comfort on stormy days and wintry nights. The Word of God is the food by which prayer is nourished and made strong. Prayer like man cannot live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So central to praying effectively is the word of God. Now if you know what God's will is when you pray something, then that breeds confidence when you do pray. Uh, Turn to 1 John 5 verses 14 and 15. When you ask something according to God's will, when you pray the promises of God, the precepts of God, and the principle that are found in God's word, you can have confidence and pray with real and definite faith. Look at 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Quite simple, isn't it? Straight That word confidence means to be able to speak openly, frankly, freely, and fearlessly. Because when his will is prayed, he hears you. And when he hears you, you know you have that request. That's pretty strong stuff. Prayer should be so much more than just casting wishes to heaven. It should be rooted in understanding God's will and promises according to his word and praying those promises into action. For each prayer request, we should mentally or vocally ask, what possible reason do I have to think that God's going to answer this? Remember the bracelets we used to wear back in the 90s, right? WWJD, ask yourself. What would Jesus do? All right, well now we're asking ourselves, what would Jesus pray? What would he pray? Where are you gonna find out? In the word of God. And then once you know, wash that prayer in the water of the word. How does that look like practically? Well here, first I've just, and this is just, I mean, you do it however God shows you to do it for me. I just quiet myself. I get still, and I just clear my mind, and I clear my will. And I ask the Holy Spirit to guide me in my prayer. You know, I'll even remind him that he lives within me, and that he is the spirit of truth, according to John sixteen thirteen, and that he's supposed to guide me into all truth. THAT HE'S NOT GOING TO SPEAK ON HIS OWN AUTHORITY, that, BUT WHATEVER HE HEARS, HE WILL SPEAK. AND I'LL ALSO REMIND HIM AND MYSELF OF LUKE 11:13. 13. MY FATHER IN HEAVEN WHO LOVES ME, HOW MUCH MORE WILL HE GIVE ME THE HOLY SPIRIT? BECAUSE I'VE ASKED HIM. DO YOU SEE THAT? NOW, DOES THAT MEAN HE NEEDED TO BE REMINDED OF THAT? No, I needed to be reminded of that so that I can pray and speak openly and freely that I can speak with confidence. But I need to know what your will is concerning any given situation. So I say, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth, guide me into truth. Then I bring the concern before him and I listen. I listen to his voice. and. Invariably, Scripture will come to mind that applies to that situation. And that's what I begin to pray. Now, this presupposes that I've been in the Word. okay? It presupposes that I I, I know some of the Word, have some of it memorized, or at least I know some of the principles of the Word. And if I don't know exactly what the principle is, I know where I can find it or I know how to go find it. So, I'm not just depending upon Some mysterious thing to come in the back of my head, I am waiting for the Spirit of God to guide and direct me. And it may mean I've got to open and flip some pages around until I find that scripture that applies to that situation. The most powerful prayers in the Bible are always prayers which understand the will of God and then ask Him to perform it. Turn to 1 Kings 18. I'll give you an example. 1 Kings 18.1 Now, set you up here on what this is about. For three years, because of Elijah's prayer, it hasn't rained, it's been a drought. And Ahab has been bothered by that, thinking that Elijah caused this. He doesn't really get it, that this is God trying to get his attention. But nevertheless, he's all over Elijah about it. Now for those of us who went to Israel, is there anybody else here that went on the trip? Do you remember the store that we, we stopped at and there was a camel outside of the store, right? And the cross? there was like a little convenience mart and there was those ruins. Do you guys know what that was? King Ahab's castle. That's it. King Ahab's castle. We stood there and was kind of looking around to see where Jezebel got tossed out, you know. They had great food there too. Yeah. Uh Shawarma. Well, it came to pass after many days, verse 1, that the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord? It's the word of the Lord. It's that Bible you have in your hand. Came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. There's a promise. I will send rain on the earth. Hasn't rained in three years. Pray for rain. I'm going to send it. Then Elijah said to Ahab, look at verse 41. We're dropping down there. Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Odd, right? When you pray, what position do you take? (laughs) Horizontally, head on the pillow. (laughs) Or you bow your knees and fold your hands and close your eyes. Why is he bending over, squatting, and put his head between his knees? This is a birthing position. This is how women would give birth. It speaks of fervency, and it speaks of the work of prayer, which is sometimes agony. Okay? He's getting into it. He's getting into this prayer. And then verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Seven times he's taking this birthing physician and he is praying and agonizing that God would do what God said he would do, bring the rain. Came to pass the seventh time that he said there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And it happened that in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain, so Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. He had God's word, so it's a done deal. But it requires what? Prayer. It requires prayer. He bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees, fervent prayer. This prayer required fervency. And he repeated the prayer seven times. You know why? Because that's how many times it took for the prayer to be heard and answered. How often do we pray dispassionately? You know, we sort of give it a one and done. Lord, you said you'd bring rain. I pray that you bring rain. Thank you in Jesus' name. Let's go to Peter Piper. Have a pizza. (laughs) How seldom do we pray for unprecedented and impossible things? Because we lack the faith, we lack the perseverance, we lack the desire to agonize in prayer. You guys remember John Newton, right? The ex slave owner, the one, and actually, slave ship owner and uh, writer of that great, most famous gospel song, Amazing Grace. Well, he also wrote another hymn in one of the stanzas, and it goes like this. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Scripture bears witness to the fact that God delights to answer daring prayers that are based on his promises. Oswald Sanders, not Oswald Sanders, was it Oswald? That's the guy, the book that we're studying on Tuesday night, right, Oswald Sanders, yeah. He says you can be audacious in your prayers. Like that word? I remember what we used to say in the 90s, bodacious. That was totally bodacious, dude. Well, here you can be audacious. What does that mean? It means that you're willing to take a surprisingly bold risk, going to go big in your prayer. Like Bruce Arians said when he was coach here, you know, no risk it, no biscuit. (laughs) <laughs> All right, go big. And it means you can pray importunately or importunately, however you want to pronounce it. Do you know what that means? That means you can be troublesome, troublesomely urgent or persistent in requesting, like that two year old in the supermarket wanting his Captain Crunch with crunch bearings. And mom denying him that and he keeps asking and she keeps denying but he keeps asking and you hear this argument all up and down every aisle of the store till finally when she's at the cash register and he's throwing this absolute fit about wanting that stupid cereal that she grabs a box, rips it open, and shoves his face in it. (laughs) Right? That's being importunate. All right. Sometimes answers to prayer require importunity. Look at Luke 18. Luke 18. Luke 18.1 This is Jesus now. It says that he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus spoke a lot of parables, but he didn't always give the reason for why he was speaking the parable, but here he does. This parable I'm going to teach you here is so that you don't quit in prayer, that you persist in prayer. Verse 2, saying, There was a certain in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, nor regard men. And there was a widow in that city. And she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by continual coming she wearies me. This widow, um, let's say that when her husband passed away, he he owned a parcel of land. That would be her sole way of making a living. And as people who read the newspaper oftentimes do, found a way to take advantage of her and ripped her off from it. Now, she has no livelihood. She is kicked to the curb and on the streets. So she goes to the judge to get justice, but she's got a problem. You know what the problem is? She's a woman. In that day and in that culture, in that society, women had absolutely no standing before the law. If you didn't have a a male relative or a husband go before you in the court, you're stuck. You're done. So she goes to the place where they meet. And remember when we were at the gates of Abraham, we, we saw um, the gate of the city, and that's where they would do all of the court hearings in the gate of the city. But just picture it as, as some place like, um, I don't know, a courthouse drama, right, 12 angry men. They're there. They're in the court. And she's standing there, and, and the judge has a moment, and she yells out, I need justice. And, and she, she, she screams out, you know, I need justice. This guy ripped me off. I need you to get my land back and the judge says you know he's a gamble says out of order out of order you know stifle that woman she keeps yelling order in the court order in the court she keeps yelling finally he says bailiff take her out and they drag her out and as they're dragging her out she's still yelling all the way out the door into the hallway okay she comes back in as soon as they let her go She wants justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. Bang, bang, bang. Bailiff. Get her out of here again. They take her out this time outside the courthouse. She goes around back. She comes in. She finds where the judge's chamber is. And she's waiting at his chambers as he comes back. And she has her removed again. He goes to lunch. She tracks him down. She finds out where he's eating she goes in and sits right across from him and she says, you've got to give me justice. You've got to do justice for me. She starts creating a scene and then the manager comes and takes her outside. So she, then she's banging on the window. <laughs> give me justice. Give me justice. He goes back to court. Guess who's the first one there? That woman. That's right. And she's, she's screaming for justice. So she gets hauled out again. He goes home after a hard day of this and Gus is waiting at his doorstep. <laughs> this one, give me justice, give me justice. She, she, she threatened, he threatens to have the, the police come and remove her, she doesn't remove herself, so she goes outside the gate, and as soon as he shuts the door, she runs back in and she finds somewhere around the house where she can have a find an open window, or a sliding glass door or somehow, and she goes back in. And she even goes up into his, his bedroom in the second story. And there he is, you know, getting ready to relax, uh, probably standing in his bvds and 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 she says you've got to give me justice all right you're, you're taking this too far you've got to get out of here i'm going to have you arrested she calls the police she spends the night in jail she gets out of jail and guess where she goes back to the courthouse give me justice and finally he throws his hands up and he says Fuck, just what do you need <laughs> okay go, go arrest that guy get the deed of the property back give it to her be done with us. She's wearing me out. You get the idea. That's importunity. That's being importunate. That's being persistently annoying. And in verse six, notice what he says. The Lord said, "Hear what the unjust judge said." He's saying, you know, pointing back to verse five. What did the unjust judge say? I will avenge her. I will avenge her. So what am I saying? That God is an unjust judge that He has to be badgered to get your prayers answered? Not at all. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is the unjust judge who didn't care about anything and wasn't even going to listen to this woman. But the greater is our Heavenly Father who will listen because of his love for us much more willing to listen to your prayers, much more willing to answer your prayers. So that raises the question, then why, why didn't you simply answer it without having to require us to be so importunate? I want you to use that in a conversation at lunch today, okay? <laughs> well Ephesians 6.12, that tells us that there's a spiritual battle going on. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and against rulers of darkness in this age. And 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that the weapons of our warfare in this spiritual battle are not carnal, but spiritual for tearing down the strongholds. And that spiritual power is in your importunate prayer. Let me t- turn to Daniel 10.12. I think we have time to get this in. Um, and here's an example of what I'm talking about. Daniel chapter 10. to give you the background here, uh, Daniel has been reading the book of Jeremiah. He's in the word. And he realizes that the 70 years of captivity are up. And he wants to know what's next. And he he has been praying now, by the time you get to Daniel chapter 10, he's been praying for three weeks for spiritual understanding of what's next. He's been fasting, he's been praying, he's been confessing sins. Then he gets a personal visit from the angel Gabriel. Look at verse 12. Then he, that's Gabriel, said to me, do not fear Daniel, for from the first day, that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. I've come because of your prayer. The first day I was sent, but, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. He's saying, Daniel, your prayer was received in answer the first day you prayed it. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, or another way of saying principalities and powers and spiritual forces, withstood me. He opposed me. He was blocking my way. He was standing his ground against me, and I needed to get Michael to come back me up so I could break free to get down here. Samuel Chadwick contends this, Satan fears nothing from prayerless studies, teaching and preaching. He laughs at our toil and he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And that starts a fight. Okay? There's a battle that's going on. And that's why Jesus taught the parable of the unjust judge, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And the takeaway is this. SHAMELESS PERSISTENCE, OTHERWISE KNOWN AS IMPORTUNITY, SHAMELESS PERSISTENCE GOES AWAY WITH FULL HANDS. THAT'S GOOD TO KNOW. BUT YOU KNOW, THE OPPOSITE IS ALSO TRUE. TEPID, LUKEWARM PRAYING DOES NOT MOVE GOD MUCH AT ALL. Oswald SANDERS SAID IF OUR DESIRE IS SO FEEBLE THAT WE CAN DO WITHOUT WHAT WE ARE ASKING AND IT'S NOT SOMETHING WE MUST HAVE AT ALL costs." Why should our prayer be answered? Adoniram, Adoniram or Ram? Adoniram, I can't pronounce. Anybody know how to pronounce that first name? Adoniram Judson? Don't name your kid that. It'll take him forever to fill out his kindergarten paper. Anyway, he was a missionary to Burma back in the 1800s. He translated the Bible into Burmese. He compiled an English Burmese dictionary and established a 100 churches and had thousands of believers. He said, God loves an importunate prayer so much that he will not give us much blessing without it. He knows that it is a necessary preparation for our receiving the richest blessing he is longing to bestow. Now, while this is going on, while this prayer that you continue to pray and bring your needs before him and and struggle, there's an interesting thing happening between you and God. You're playing a game of catch. You're playing a game of catch. First Peter five, six and seven. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. What was Daniel's care? I need to know what's going on. What do we do next, right? Casting your care, your prayer requests on him. Now that word casting is interesting because it means to roll something that most likely is going to roll back to you. You cast your care. Lord, what's next? He comes back to you. I don't know. There's a fight going on between Gabriel and some dude. All right. You see what's going on here? While this is being happening, you're having this fellowship and this time with Lord. You're having a game of catch. I mean, haven't you ever found that praying and casting your care on the Lord, you feel okay for a little bit, but then it just rolls right back on you, and you feel that burden again, right? He wants you to stay in close touch with him. He doesn't want you to quit and lose heart. He wants you to know that while you are waiting for the request, that he's doing a work in you, that he is strengthening your faith, and he wants you to enjoy his presence. He wants you to seek him more than the answer to your prayer. Because ultimately we're gonna end up in the holy of holies that were that kind of glorious with the presence and the intimate fellowship. All right. Oswald Sanders, one last time. Delayed answers to prayer are not only trials of faith, they also give us opportunities to honor God through our steadfast confidence in him, even when facing the apparent denial of our request. So review. At the labor, we wash our prayers with the word of God. We know that if we pray according to his will, we have the request we ask of him. We know that if the answer is delayed, it's because there's spiritual warfare happening and we need to persevere. We know that if the answer is delayed, it may be his time is just, yet we need, isn't just yet, and still we need to persevere. We know that if the answer is delayed, he's working out a greater good in drawing me nearer to him with a game of catch. All right? You guys ready to go home? And get your mitts out. <laughs> Head out with God in the backyard. All right, let's all stand, please. We are about to sing, go ahead and hit the lights. We're about to sing the doxology. You guys should know this by heart by now. But what I want to encourage you is that you think about some of the principles that were taught to you today. And you go and you seek the Lord and you don't go to God and say, well, pastor said. (laughs) You go to the Lord and you say, you said. This is your word, Father, you said. And you pray earnestly, you pray persistently, even have a tinge of respectful attitude that's still attitude. And you know what? You will draw near to him and you will feel his presence. He will bring the word of God into your mind and you can have that confidence that first John tells us about. He will answer your prayer. He is a God who answers prayer and he is the only one who answers prayer, amen? Well, Father, I I pray your blessings upon these precious people. I pray they walk out of here today with strengthened faith, encouragement, Lord, and conviction. And I thank you that you are the God who answers prayer. And I thank you for your encouragement that we need to pray persistently, Lord. And though we think we're annoying you with our quest, we realize that we are engaging in spiritual warfare and that we are drawing closer to you, that perhaps there's a work that you're doing in our lives that we're not ready for the answer yet. So in your time and in your way, you will answer the prayers. We know that we can have the things that you hear when it comes from your word. So Father, bless them and keep them and make your face to shine them. Cause your love to abound between them, Lord. And may they be ready to give an answer to every man who asks of them of the hope that's within their hearts and minds i pray this in jesus precious name and everyone said amen, amen. praise it's god from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. We'll bless you guys. Have an awesome day. See you next week.